Welcome back to Practically Political. I'm Dave Spencer. It's great to have you with us again. Yes, we're happy to have you all. I'm Carrie Sheffield. We have a special guest from the Bipartisan Policy Center from BPC. Uh, his name is Bill Hoagland. He is a senior vice president there and an expert on all things budget and economics. And boy, Dave, no nothing's been happening on that front, right? We've had no budget crisis, right? No, and, and what I and what I like is when they're when they're when they're when they get serious about it, they're negotiating over fourteen percent of the budget. So there's so much to cut. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's huge, and then have a, a complete leadership meltdown over that fourteen percent for six weeks. So <laughs> anyway, I, I just I'm trying to understand where do we go from here. So. Bill, what, what's your assessment? I mean, you've, you've followed these antics for so long. I mean, this was unprecedented to have a speaker removed. That's never happened as I understand it. Um, no. This is uncharted terrain, but Bill, I think you're someone who can help us at least navigate what's happening. What, what's your read on everything as, as it relates to what do we do with the budget moving forward? Well, thank you. And thank you for having me, Carrie and Dave. Um, where are we going in the next, uh, quite frankly, we're probably down to 30 days, not 45 days when you take out the fact that they've lost this week and they will not come back until Wednesday in the House uh, and vote on their new leader, whoever that might be on Wednesday, and uh, get organized under the new leader. We've lost maybe two weeks of that 45 days at a continuing resolution. So uh, the clock is ticking away and not a lot of time left here to uh, get all the appropriation bills done, which is what uh, Mr. Getz said we had to do, all 12 of them. Um, the House has passed a uh, few of them, but uh, and the Senate has, Senate has passed all of its uh, out of its committees and are ready to go. Uh, but uh, we're, at, we're big, still big difference between the Senate and the House in terms of the, where the uh, number should be. It goes back all the way to the spring when we set in the uh, Fiscal Responsibility Act when we raised the debt limit and set the numbers for what the appropriation should be for this uh, uh, fiscal year that began uh, last week. Well, I guess, you know, I guess what's so frustrating to people on the outside is that you have a combination, it's like the perfect storm. So you have people like Matt Gates who don't really care about governing. And of course, you know, it's all about the debt unless there's a Republican in the White House, right? Donald Trump had the most profligate four years of any president in history, a quarter of our debt in just four years. Uh, but and then on top of that, you have most of the budgets off the table. So you have, as I understand it, and Bill, you probably know this stuff better than we, but about 14 percent of the budget is discretionary, about another 12 percent is military. So you've got under a third of the budget that's discretionary and now military is off the table. So you're talking about 14%. This is what they're arguing about. And I must admit, I really resent both Trump and Biden, frankly, for taking social security entitlements off the table because that's where the money is. And there've been some brave senators. We've talked about this on the show before, like Bill yeah. Cassidy, who's saying, hey guys, in 2034, there's gonna be 25% almost mandatory cuts we, we, we have to do something, but people are just burying their, their heads in the sand. What do we do? What's going what's gonna to break the logjam of this perfect storm? Well, you're singing my uh, uh, tune here. Um, yes, uh, when you look at the total federal budget, uh, about uh, for all practical purposes, about 75% uh, of it is uh, off, uh, off, the, uh, off the rails in terms of what is available to be uh, touched by the getses of the world, that, that Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, 
Uh, and uh, of course, you're just paying the interest on our public debt. And that leaves, as you say, Dave, about 30%. And then of that 30%, about half of that is defense. And it, let's go even further. I'll say, I'll suggest to you that's even a smaller percentage because uh, the uh, uh, Republicans in the House have said we're going to touch veterans, and veterans is a non-defense discretionary. So we're probably down to 10, 10 to 12 percent of the federal budget we're arguing about here. The difference between the House and the Senate in, in terms of where they are with the overall numbers is about $120 billion. Uh, the Senate agreed back in the uh, Senate, uh, when we had the agreement back in the spring to raise the debt limit, we set caps for the current fiscal year and for fiscal year 25. And the, and the Senate, uh, and that number was one uh, was uh, $1.6 uh, trillion for all, not all discretionary, all appropriated accounts that we're talking about here, which is about, as I say, about 30% of the budget. And the important thing here is that uh, in that uh, that was the that there's a question that's been raised uh, and uh, Mr. Getz and others have uh, challenged it uh, that that was was that a ceiling or was that a floor? And the Senate considers it a floor. That's the number that they've marked up all their appropriation bills, 1.6. And the for and well maybe Mr. McCarthy a backdoor deal that this way maybe maybe. Maybe part of his problem of losing the leadership is because he did a side deal on the behind to tell his conservative friends not to worry about the 1.5 because it's a it's a, a ceiling. Uh, we can go below it, and so they have been marking up bills at a much lower level, the fiscal year 22 level of, of I say about 1.5. So that that nearly 200 150 billion dollar difference is what we're arguing about here. But most of that, when it comes right down to it, as you said, is not defense. Uh, it's not the military con construction and it's not veterans benefits. And when you add it up for the Health and Human Services Subcommittee, that's nearly a $60 billion difference. And that's uh, we got a long way to go here. Even if the House could pass its bills, the Senate is going to be higher. They're going to have to negotiate and uh, uh, between the House and Senate. So we're, we're going to probably, I think we're going to end up having another continued resolution after November, uh, after Thanksgiving. We're going to have to have another one carrying us right up into uh, jingle bells. So I guess the question I have is, since, since you are with the Bipartisan Policy Center and I'm a conservative, I'm someone who would have not voted to remove the speaker. But one thing that I think I found upsetting from a bipartisan standpoint was that the reason ostensibly why uh, McCarthy was removed because he had worked with Democrats in a bipartisan way to get the stopgap spending. And then you have those same Democrats turning around and voting to depose him for doing a bipartisan thing. So what does this mean for bipartisanship? Is bipartisanship dead? I mean, it was it's, to me, it seemed like these Democrats didn't really care about actually governing. They, they wanted They wanted political vengeance, even though he was actually working with them across the aisle. Listen, Carrie, I am with you on this. I don't understand. Uh, at the Bipartisan Policy Center and coming from the, from the Bipartisan Policy, no surprise here. I was pleased and happy that we avoided the shutdown last Sunday night by uh, working out this deal, a deal between uh, the House and Senate uh, on a continuing resolution. It did not include the Ukraine money, which I know is an issue here, and that's something I have to be addressed 
somehow, probably over the next uh, few weeks. But you're right. Uh, he, did, he did something which was uh, bipartisan. Now, um, it was definitely bipartisan in the Senate. And uh, yes, there were a number of uh, Democrats that helped him pass that bill to make it bipartisan. So bipartisanship is not, uh, it's not beanball. It's tough. And uh, it came back to haunt him. But I'm surprised. I was surprised. I truly was surprised. I expected that a few Democrats, um, safe Democratic seats, would have uh, come across and uh, offset the eight votes that uh, he lost uh, from the Republican conservative group, because because uh, uh, now they're going to be faced with, quite frankly, they're going to probably be faced with an even tougher uh, situation. And whether it's uh, Jim Jordan or whether it's uh, Mr. Shalise, I, I don't know. But it, it, this does not bode well for bipartisanship going forward now. Well, let, let me just add one thing that, yes, it's true that he did work with them uh, in a bipartisan manner in terms of getting their votes. But if you talk to even, uh, I think, some of the more sane Democrats, they'll tell you he did nothing on the PR front or, or nothing on the Sunday talk show circuit yeah. to reach out at all. In fact, he kind of hung them out to dry. Plus, there, I, there's never been, in my mind, a single instance where people have voted to save a speaker, because I think it's always if your opponent's digging a hole, well, don't take away their shuttle or their shovel. Now, so I can understand, even though I think strategically, I agree with you, it would have been better for the Dems to try to get some kind of con concession kind of get some kind of deal because he'd already, you know, he'd already, McCarthy, this is, reached, reached the point of no return. So either, you know, he'd violated the deal, so they were going to get rid of him or they weren't. So he didn't have anything else to lose if he if he did it. But what, what worries me, folks, and I want to get your take on this, I certainly don't think that maybe Steve Scalise, but definitely not Jim Jordan, can get the 218 votes. And I'm worried that there's not anyone in the chamber, frankly, who can get 218 votes. and the House cannot function without a speaker. So what's going to happen there? First of all, uh, I agree uh, that uh, I think he could have saved his speakership if he had made it, continued his bipartisanship that evening and walked across the aisle. I, and I believe he thought he could have done that. But yes, you're right. Uh, he, he made some uh, decisions such as the impeachment proceedings on the president, which probably it didn't help uh, with a number of Democrats on the other side. And so he he could have, I think, saved his uh, neck, if you like. But he he did not at that last moment. He did not choose to work with the Democrats uh, and make some deals. So he lost it. Uh, he was bipartisan. He lost it because he was bipartisan. And then he didn't uh, carry through and he, he got the vote because he because he was bipartisan. But then he didn't follow through by working all the way in. Uh, what will happen? All I know is, Dave, I'm not up there right now. Uh, all I can say is, and Terry, when the, caucus, the Republican caucus meets on Tuesday, if I understand the procedure, they are not going to come out onto this House floor and vote until they know they, somebody has 218 votes. Now, given how narrow that caucus is in terms of votes compared to the Democrats, I, I'm worried that you, you may have some agreement, you think, in the caucus, and then you walk out on the floor and you still lose it. So uh, at least the, they're going to try not to make a spectacle out of it like it happened with the 15 votes earlier this year with Mr. Uh, with Mr. McCarthy. We have an interim speaker, that's uh, Patrick McHenry, right? 
is is he able to basically do the exact same functions that a speaker does? Is there anything that an interim speaker cannot do? I'm an old Senate staffer. I'm not a House uh, staffer. Uh, interim, we haven't really had an interim speaker. So I think it's kind of a cutting it out of whole cloth here, what he can do, he can't do. He certainly did vacate uh, Mrs. Pelosi and Mr. Van Hollen's uh, offices right after he took over. So he has some power, but uh, uh, he can operate for a while, but uh, you really have to have an elected speaker. So I don't know how much uh, uh, say he has in setting the agenda on the floor, the bills that come to the floor and things of that nature. And remember, this is going to be interesting for Mr. Scalise has been the one that's been running the floor that usually that's his job and um, i don't know how he's going to feel if that he runs for speaker and he loses how he's going to feel about working with mr jordan it's going to be there's going to be real division here still within the republic and there's a i can't i can't tell you how palpable for some members of a lot of members up there are very angry and upset about what happened and uh, that's in some ways that's why they went home because there was going to be all out uh, fist cuts up there if we hadn't uh, after that um, decision that was made on Tuesday. Well, you have 96% of the uh, caucus voting for him and they were yeah. all, they were going to be these eight members. And again, this was uh, something that was going to happen. But if you have a, a situation where a single person can, can bring in a, a motion to vacate, Eventually, this was this was going to happen. I think it started the big, you know, it started with the debt ceiling. That was the beginning of the end. And then it just got worse and worse. And so, um, yeah, as I said, I, I I'm just hoping for the business of the country that they can find a speaker. But, uh, you know, I, it, it's as Mike Murphy said right now, it's I think most people would rather work on the Beirut bomb squad. <laughs> This is this is not a job that uh, very, that uh, very very many people want, and it's going to make it a lot tougher to uh, to get anything done. And then you you know you've got the, the the pit of snakes waking waking once you get there. And I just again I I almost felt sorry for Kevin McCarthy because the way that that um, yeah. Matt Gates yeah. talked to him, I just can't imagine AOC or. Ilan Omar, whoever you want to say on the left, talking to Nancy Pelosi like that, it would just never happen. I too was a little felt little bad for the speaker, uh, former speaker, Mr. McCarthy. I'm always reminded of that. I think it was uh, that long-serving speaker Sam Rayburn who used to say, it "Takes a jackass to kick down a barn; it takes a carpenter to build it." Um, I don't think Mr. Getz had a plan other than a vendetta to get rid of Mr. McCarthy. And that's the sad part about it, because there we should set aside those personal differences and think about the country first and foremost, as, as opposed to our own personal uh, desires. But uh, there's a lot of anger uh, still in that Republican caucus. And I just don't know how it's going to play out next week. Larry, how are they how are they supposed to govern? Well, so I guess just to present, you know, sort of the, the Matt Gates perspective, you know, uh, I, Dave, I sent you an email from uh, Citizens Renewing America, who yeah, I saw, won I by Russ Vote, who was uh, OMB director for President Trump. And he sent an email around after this happened, basically saying he agreed with what happened because he said that um, McCarthy broke his promises. He said that he um, he twice... Uh, broke the promises that basically on spending, I'm trying to find the exact wording here, but that the agreement that he said that in order to get the speakership, 
that he would fund the government through individual appropriations bills. I understand what the argument is, that he wanted to do each of the 12 individual appropriations. Yeah, how practical is that? Come on. But that was an agreement. That was the argument was that that's okay. He shouldn't have agreed to it upon assuming the speaker said that was conditional. But I would I would argue that part of the problem why you can't why we weren't able to do that has to go all the way back to the spring when we spent so much time working over raising the statutory debt limit. So and the, the same people that are hold, that that held up that uh, raising the debt limit so we could have moved on quicker uh, were the people now are arguing well we can't get our work we didn't do the twelve bills well. It's not, I, don't, I just don't think the time was available. By the way, also in terms of agreements, I don't know what the agreements were, uh, but the level that is set in the House for the markup of those 12 appropriation bills is at the 20 fiscal year 22 level. That is what I thought Mr. Getz and the conservatives wanted. That's why it's $120 billion lower than what the House, Senate's marking up. Now, you could, we can get in an argument, was it a ceiling or was it a floor? But at least on on the issue of spending and with Medicare, Social Security, all that off the table, no revenues, the only thing left is, as Dave has said, is that 14%. And so we're talking about the, uh, whether, whether the agreement back in the spring um, still holds, was it a ceiling or was it a floor? And I tell you that from what they're marking up, it is at the level that I that I thought the conservatives wanted, which was fiscal year 22 level, which is the $1.5 trillion. Well, it, again, it'll be interesting to see what happens because I think that a lot of people feel, well, it's a blank check when there's a GOP, someone in the White House, but it's a... Uh, it's it's a it's a real issue then when there's a when there's a Democrat. So I think there's part of the uh, there there's that issue, and then there's also the issue of um, trying to figure out okay, well, is, are these people really serious about governing, or is it about small donors? Is it about clicks? Is it about TV time? What's the real motive here? And I think that um, it just reinforces again people how dispirited people are with with government because it's it's never consistent you know and and, you know as i always say and carrie's heard me say this so many times all politicians love to spend spend money the the democrats just admit it but i'll give you the last word on this one carrie i'm just going to say carrie i want i want to come to your defense i do agree that we need to control the debt and deficits and i've worked my career on reducing the debt that portion of the federal budget, though, that is being focused on here is what I refer to as the seed corn of the future. And it is the area that has been reduced the most over the last decade. Unless we're willing to be honest about what really is driving spending in this country, um, and I realize they're the third rails of politics, then we are not going to solve this problem of our debt and deficits long term. No, and, and there's so much of our debt that is going to be renegotiated in the next year, much higher interest rates, right? So again, the stat that I keep saying like a broken record, one 1% increase in a $30, $30 trillion debt is $300 billion worth of extra interest a year. So we're going to be paying an extra trillion dollars plus just in interest. I did. A, we have an interactive model that I ran this morning. And when that going from 38 to 4.8 uh, on the 10-year, 
is three trillion dollars over the next decade. It's uh, you've there got you one go. of your numbers. It, it is a big number, and it's probably not coming down. And that's not and that's not going then to infrastructure, education, or science or technology. That's just going for some of our overseas investors. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, Bill, and I, I'm just acknowledging your work on the committee for a responsible federal budget. I, I think you guys do great work on there also. And, and yeah, you're, you're preaching the choir here on Dave and I are certainly in agreement that it is a hypocr hypocrisy is the user universal sin when it comes to spending, at least for Republicans. I do agree with Dave on that. Um, but at least uh, the principle should be there. And, and I agree with you, Bill, that it should not be the third rail. It shouldn't be a third rail about reforming these systems. And, you, and they do have in Social Security, for example, some mandatory cliffs that are going to happen, whether or not we proactively reform Social Security, there will be some large cuts to these to go pay for these interest payments. Yeah, it will, it, it's coming regardless if we in 2033, if we do not reform uh, the Social Security program, we're looking at something like a 17 or 20 percent reduction in what the benefits would have been otherwise. And uh, so we do have to make change. It's going to happen. We're going to have to face up to this sooner or later. Just we're not going to face up to it in this Congress. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, it's like the old Amco ad. You can pay me now or you can pay me a lot more later. And I, all I would say to our viewers is talk to your congressman. Tell them this is not just about the easy 14 percent. This is about our budget. Until we address entitlements, we're not going to address the budget crisis. Bill, it's been so great having you on. So much appreciate the work that you're doing. I know sometimes it must seem like the Sisyphean task of uh, all eternity, but thank you so much for doing it, and thanks for being on the show. We'll, we'll definitely have you back. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. So on that note, we will bid you adieu. Thank you so much for joining us once again on Practically Political. It's always great to have you. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield, and we'll catch you next time.